Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 45. So you might imagine that when you have a global pandemic and supply chains get disrupted, ships are not sailing, airplanes are not going, people are not moving, the impact on economies in the region has been devastating. The challenge is that many governments in Asia are simultaneously imposing policies that make it even worse for businesses to be online and digital. I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Trade in Asia is changing at an alarming pace. The US-China trade war continues to grind on. Firms are now seriously thinking about their existing supply chain footprints and understanding the importance of free trade agreements in and around Asia-Pacific has never been more important. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Deborah Elms, CEO at Asian Trade Center. Deborah, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Thank you very much. So if we could start with a brief introduction or a 30-second elevator pitch, who are you, where are you from, and what do you do? So I run the Asian Trade Center out of Singapore. I am an American, but I've been here in Singapore for more than 16 years. We work with companies and governments on designing better trade and trade policies in the region. So that's the overall objective. So to do that, we work in a trade association and we also work with governments, large to small firms, matching them up with governments and getting feedback from government to return back to businesses. And we do this because in Asia, that business government link that is so common in other places is less well-developed, more ad hoc, and more about which firm knows which government official rather than a sort of feedback mechanism that you get in other places. Got it. Thank you. And we'll go into discussing the role of government with regards to trade and also SMEs later on. So let's jump into it and and let's start straight off the bat with COVID-19. What's been the impact of COVID-19 for business in Singapore and also more widely in Asia-Pac? This is an extremely trade-dependent region. So you might imagine that when you have a global pandemic and supply chains get disrupted, ships are not sailing, airplanes are not going, people are not moving, the impact on economies in the region has been devastating. We have had the sharpest drops, as in many places in the world, but the sharpest drops in trade, in manufacturing, in services, in travel and tourism, in memory, certainly, and perhaps as much as 150 years in peacetime, we haven't seen this kind of economic challenge in the region. And I guess Asia, as you said, it really is a global head hub for trade. Do you think its position as that hub will change and has changed as a result of COVID-19? And we've definitely seen, as you said, diversified supply chains. I'm going to say yes and no. So the easy answer that members of the media in particular like to point to, and even politicians, is to say, well, now that you've seen trade get disrupted, the solution to this is let's change up our supply chains, let's make them more resilient, let's make them stronger, less brittle. And by doing so, we will also either reshore or nearshore production, because then we can avoid the worst challenges arising from global trade disruptions. The problem with that narrative is that 
it relies on businesses making the decision to change their existing footprint, change what they source, where they source it from, where they manufacture, where they ultimately ship products to. And for most firms, while many are thinking about changing their sourcing, manufacturing locations and footprints, it's not as easy as politicians and the media suggest to make that happen, even if you've made the decision internally inside your company to move. The narrative says, as a result of the pandemic and all of this disruption, you will have lots of supply chains shifting. The reality seems to be you're having some, and I would argue a fairly small amount of actual shifting taking place as a result of the pandemic, at least so far. Can you give any examples of this? So let's say you're a US firm and you're heavily reliant on Chinese or China-based suppliers. What are the biggest issues with nearshoring or offshoring or changing those supply chains? There are several things that you need to think about if you're a firm. So the first one is typically your firm is in China for what I would argue pretty good reasons. Why? Because China is fast, they're efficient, they're effective. You can ask for a change in a manufactured, you can have the prototype sitting on your desk in a matter of hours or days. You can have full up production taking place within, usually within two weeks. The quality is very high. The consistency is very high. That is hard to replicate anywhere else. We've seen firms over the last, at least let's say a dozen years, talking about diversifying out of China as a result originally of wage rises in China that was making it more expensive to be manufacturing things in China. Not that much has actually changed because firms have decided after they did this sort of survey of the other alternative locations that China was better and they stayed in China. Now that got a bit disrupted over the last two years of an escalating and apparently never ending US-China trade war that prompted many firms to say, wow, if I have to pay 25% tariffs on my products, maybe I should rethink where I'm located and why. And then the COVID on top of it at the beginning of this year forced firms to reflect again on what are they manufacturing, where are they doing it and why. But the end result of that for many firms is inconclusive. In other words, yes, I'm paying more costs. Yes, it's a bit more disrupted, but the alternatives still remain perhaps less attractive. So we see firms, some of whom are shifting and when they shift, The beneficiaries tend to be three markets in particular, Mexico for the U.S. market, Vietnam for firms that want to have a China plus one strategy, and Eastern Europe, like Poland, if you want, especially if you want to do anything that you're shipping ultimately to Europe. Keeping it in Europe for Europe makes a bit more sense. We see some firms shifting, but many firms not because the alternatives are not great. Or, and this is a final point on this, because the China market itself is so attractive. You know, 1.4 billion Chinese, rising middle class, growing purchasing power. If you want to be in the Chinese market, you need to be in China. And so firms, even if they wanted to diversify, many of them are having to have double production lines, one for non-China and one for in China, or one for China and Asia, and one for outside of Asia and China. That's very interesting. And I guess it would be remiss of me to not mention the Hong Kong-China situation, the geopolitical situation at the moment. How has that impacted corporates procuring from China? I don't think it's necessarily affected procurement as such, but it's got firms increasingly nervous because the financing in particular runs through Hong Kong still, despite China's openness over the last two decades. 
that most of the financial power comes and goes through Hong Kong. And to the extent that that is no longer going to be the case, firms are grappling, I think, with what is the alternative. And can we stay in China if we don't have Hong Kong banking and financing and so forth? And if the answer is yes, then do we need to do something different? I think for most firms, the situation in Hong Kong is so fluid that I'm not certain that firms have really come to grips with that one yet. I guess other than Vietnam, which is certainly a frontier market, are there any other markets which are, I guess, competing for that same space in terms of China plus one? I mean, in India, population 1.3 billion or thereabouts. What are the frontier markets and, and also in, in Asia Pac? And what are the what are the biggest challenges, I guess, when it comes to corporates looking for new supplier opportunities? Well, all of the countries in this region will tell you with confidence that they should be the location for any China plus one production of any kind. The reality, though, for firms is that there are markets that do things well and there are markets that don't do things well. So India, you mentioned, very attractive market in its own right, very important market for many firms thinking to the future. But today, in 2020, doing business in and out of India remains much more challenging than it ought to be and certainly much more challenging than doing business in China. So firms have to think hard about, what again, what do they want to do and why? If you're servicing the Indian market for India, then it makes perhaps a lot of sense to be located in India. If you think you can use India as a production base for exports, that is very challenging. It's very hard in India right now, as it is in many places in Asia, not all, but some, to set up a business can take months. Find a piece of land on which you could put a facility more months. Find staff that are qualified and able to work even more. So you're looking at multi-year runway before your India operations are even available for you to use, and the productivity will likely be less, and the cost might not be any less, or could be even more. So I think for firms, sounds attractive, but again, once you start to run the numbers and you start thinking about cost and time, markets like India become less attractive as a platform. Now, I will say that it's also sector-specific. So if you are in textiles and manufacturing, textiles and apparel, maybe looking at Vietnam, but you may also be looking at other markets in that space. Bangladesh has been doing much better. Cambodia is a bit rocky at the moment because they're losing their European orders. So there are different destinations depending on your sector, right? If you're manufacturing electronics, then maybe you go Malaysia, maybe you go Vietnam. If you're manufacturing apparel and footwear, then you have a different set of potential alternative countries. Great. And I think, I guess, we should bring financing or SME and corporate financing in Asia back into the story here. And perhaps, you know, it's well, and it's often cited that of the one and a half trillion trade finance gap in terms of unmet needs for MSMEs, about half a trillion of that comes out of Asia Pacific, also financing more generally is still a huge problem. What are the biggest problems when it comes to SME financing in APAC? And how can we how can we start to address some of these problems? Because it's obviously it's been reported for decades now. Yeah, it is a real challenge. I mean, part of the problem for small businesses across this region is that the banking sector, full stop, is not designed for SMEs. So if you look at most companies, 
who are small, which is by far the largest share of the economy, up to 97% of firms even here in Singapore are MSMEs, micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises. But the banking sector on the whole is not geared towards helping MSMEs get financing of any kind. And part of that is because the collateral rules are difficult for MSMEs to meet. There hasn't been a need to do so, that the local banking system in different markets is protected and lucrative, especially working with the larger corporates. So there hasn't been a real need by local banks to look at how do we provide money of any kind to small businesses. As a result, MSMEs in Asia tend to be self-financed or they are financed by pooling together family members' money or they run on whatever is the profit that they can generate themselves, which of course all of this keeps them smaller than they would otherwise be. What is really interesting right now is the ability of new financing products of various kinds through fintech. So we obviously, you know, you're in this space more than I am, but the fintech excitement is important in some places. I would argue it's almost critical here in Asia because without fintech solutions, it is hard for me to see how we change the financing conditions for MSMEs in a way that is actually meaningful. You know that there's a problem in the market when many of these fintech solutions are finding take-up rates that are, frankly, off the charts. And I think it's just testament to the difficulties that firms have in getting either trade finance or any kind of finance for their business operations across most of Asia. I totally agree. And, and I also see the problems of fintech adoption, particularly when it comes to interoperability, trade policy, and also a bit of a lack of understanding. And actually, we see a lot of really exciting fintech initiatives coming out of Singapore right now. And we could probably talk on a whole podcast around digitalization of trade and trade finance in, in APAC. But we'll hold that thought. And, and I think it's a good idea to now talk about policy, particularly in respect to accelerating recovery post-COVID-19, when hopefully we do see a bit of a, a bounce back and a, and a return to a, a quote-unquote new normal. What can governments, regulators, and policymakers do to work with business and also financiers to accelerate the recovery post-COVID-19 in APAC? Well, I would argue there's a couple things they can do. The first most immediate one is to stem the bleeding, especially in the MSME sector, by providing financing, short-term financing in the form of grants or whatever to small businesses who have viable business models, but have had massive disruption to their market, especially due to lockdowns. So if you keep those businesses from going under and keep people employed, I think that's the first most important thing that government should be doing. The second most important thing that government should be doing is thinking hard about how do I make the economic and trade business landscape better and avoid doing things that will make it worse. And so let me just focus on one area in particular, which is digital trade. Everyone knows, and they knew it before, but it's reinforced now, that if you are not moving to being somehow online, this is a problem for your firm. So we've had this incredible stampede over the last couple of months to online delivery of goods, of services, et cetera. That's all fantastic. The challenge is that many governments in Asia are simultaneously imposing policies that make it even worse for businesses to be online and digital. And an example of that would be we have inconsistent and conflicting new policies coming for taxing digital services. So 
if you're delivering a service between two markets, how do we handle tax policies around that? That is very new and it's going to become a real problem for small businesses. We have inconsistent and uneven rules around e-commerce uh, goods shipments. Do we need to apply customs duties to goods shipments? And if so, to all of them, to some that are under a threshold, the rules and requirements vary. And what we've been seeing is that many governments are imposing restrictions on movement of information, the kinds of information that can move that makes it even harder for small businesses to compete coming out of COVID. So I think we have an interesting opportunity for businesses to reset the environment in a way that is more favorable, or at least makes it easier to do business. Again, with let me just be clear, appropriate safeguards in place for consumer health and safety, but does not unnecessarily restrict the ability of trade in the future. And we have really inconsistent policies across the region. That's really interesting and definitely one of the key topics at, at last year's WTO public forum, particularly around digital e-commerce rules and trade in e-commerce. What can multilaterals such as the WTO do to enforce and, and promote policy around trade of services and those e-commerce negotiations? Well, they could do a lot of things. There is, as you just noted, an ongoing negotiation among most, not all, of the WTO members to talk about what are appropriate global rules for various parts of what they call e-commerce, but really should be viewed as digital trade. But those talks are challenging. We don't have all of the member countries involved. And as you move from the early stages where you're discussing general, general ideas, general principles down to the hardcore, what are we actually going to commit ourselves to doing? They get much more challenging. Those talks get much more challenging. And we're, we're, we're at that transition point now, I think, in the negotiations where you have to start writing down commitments and you have to start figuring out how can we get the 80 plus countries who are involved in this to agree on a set of principles and commitments for e-commerce and digital trade. If they could do so, that would be great because obviously digital is even less concerned with borders than regular trade, but it's challenging. It really is quite challenging to figure out how this will work. We have a number of countries here in Asia who are very active in signing digital-only agreements. So Singapore, New Zealand, Australia, Chile have all signed different variations. There's one coming up now between Singapore and South Korea that are digital-only commitments. And I think that's a recognition that while it's great to have larger coalitions, larger groupings out of the WTO and elsewhere, if you can't get that, then let's start with a smaller group and try to expand outward on key digital provisions. Thank you. And I guess we can now bring in trade agreements or free trade agreements. Can you give us a bit of an update and, and also an overview of what's been happening when it comes to trade zones and trade agreements, particularly, I mean, look, it's been one and a half years since CPTPP was initially signed even without the US. And also, what's the latest with regards to the RCEP agreement, even since India opted out? What was that at the end of last year? These are some very important developments for businesses. So one of the things that we do in our company is we help firms figure out how to reshuffle their supply chains 
in particular to utilize these trade agreements because so many companies have never used an FTA. And so they are leaving money on the table. And sometimes the money is actually very significant. So we're looking at firms that are paying somewhere between five and even 40% tariffs when if they just used a different way of classifying goods across the border, they could be paying nothing. That is a significant cost savings to companies. And the one that provides the biggest benefits to firms And I still, I think, stand by a bet that I've made with people. I can find your company money and find you more market access through CPTPP. That's the only agreement that I can use where I can make that kind of promise because it is that deep and that comprehensive an agreement. So CPTPP, extremely important for firms. If your firm is trading between CPTPP member countries, there are seven here and there are seven, then you're missing an opportunity. The other agreement that matters here in Asia is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP. We have 15 countries negotiating this. We had 16 when India was in. It's all 10 members of ASEAN here in Southeast Asia, China, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and then sort of half in, half out India. That agreement is extremely important because it will set up trade in Asia for Asia. Despite the fact that almost all of those markets, all 15 of those markets are export powerhouses in one way or another, they trade very little, surprisingly, with themselves. So most of the final destination for goods and even services tends to be still the United States, Europe, possibly Japan, but it does not tend to have final markets in Asia for Asia. RCEP will begin, I think, to reset that. The initial publication of this agreement expected in November will be less than overwhelming. But I think it's important to remember that it starts setting up the platform for trade in the region and it will be upgraded over time to be better and better, deeper, more comprehensive, more business friendly, etc. So I think these are some really important developments in this region and they highlight how Asia, unlike some other places, have remained focused on keeping trade open because they recognize that open trade benefits them, it benefits their citizens, and it benefits their businesses. The alternative, protectionism in closed markets, is deeply problematic for Asia. It's interesting to hear that, I guess, the ideas around open trade and free trade agreements really should filter down to businesses trading or businesses with a leg in Asian markets. I guess coming to the end of this podcast now, and Deborah, thank you for such an interesting insight. Can you give me or give our listeners, who perhaps many of them are businesses operating with a trading arm in APAC, can you give three tips for corporates trading in and around Asia I guess, as we look into a a post-COVID recovery or or a post-COVID era. Well, it may not be surprising for someone who runs a trade center to say, you should be looking at trade agreements. They don't care where you're headquartered. They don't tend to care where you pay your taxes. What they care about is what do you do and where do you do it? So if you are operating between two countries that have a trade agreement between them, you owe it to yourself and your business to investigate whether there are benefits that you have not yet utilized because competitiveness is everything. So anything you can do to drive competitiveness inside of your firm is going to be the difference between survival and collapse. So first, use the trade agreements. Uh, Second, I think I would urge firms to be much more careful in paying attention to government policy and government regulations. At this time of precedented upheaval, governments are doing all kinds of things, some of which are helpful, some of which are not helpful. And firms need to keep a very close eye on developments and changes 
in Asia, but elsewhere, I'm sure, in the wake of COVID. So that when you come through this on the other side, you don't find yourself suddenly operating in an environment that is really problematic for you, your sector, your industry, etc. So firms have to engage with governments. My final piece is that government has to engage with business. I realize that your listeners may not be in government themselves, but I think it's important for businesses to remind governments that trade matters, that business opportunities matter, and that creating policy that helps businesses flourish should be front and center in an economic recovery program. Because you're not going to have the jobs and you're not going to have the kinds of jobs that you want if you don't have closer business government engagement around creating effective policy settings that allow everyone to thrive. Thank you very much, Deborah. I guess just bringing our discussion to a bit of conclusion, I think that real initial difficulty of diversifying supply chains is really resonant here. And and actually, it's all very well saying, look at other frontier markets, etc. is all very well versus the reality. I think, as you've mentioned several times today, the importance of understanding free trade agreements and what that means for your business, and also really connecting to government policy, particularly as we enter a new normal post-COVID. I think the final point really is around digital trade and the importance of digital trade trade in Asia's position with regards to e-commerce, etc. as we move forward. I think they're probably three of three of my take-homes. Dr. Deborah Elms, thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. It's been an absolute pleasure having you and look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com. 